it's possible that when the first jhana comes on, the Suki, the Sukha, it may feel like you're going out of control. This is because you're going out of control. <laughs> you can't stay in control and go into the jhana. Uh, two things to say about that. First, you've never been in control in your life anyhow. All you're giving up is the illusion of control. Uh, but the other thing is that it's okay. If the first jhana were dangerous, I'd be dead by now. Right? Um, if it feels like you're going out of control and you can just let go into it, then it's fine. You're there. Often what happens, though, people feel like, I'm going out of control. This is dangerous and they pull back, either intentionally or unintentionally. And yeah, they didn't get to the jhana. But you just do it again. So the first time you, you get close and you pull back, and the next time you get a little closer and you pull back, and then the next time you get closer still and you pull back, and then the next time you get too close and you're there, because you didn't pull back and you realize, oh yeah, it's fine, no problem. So uh, yeah, this is just another one of the things that can happen along the way. So I promised you a quiz on the five things to do at the beginning of a sitting. Now, the only people that can answer are those who have not sat with me before. The rest of you are supposed to know the answer. All right. So for those who, this is your first retreat with me. Gratitude. Motivation. 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 Determination. Metta. Breathing in, I call body and mind. Breathing out, I smile. Okay, I guess you pass. Okay, so what I want to do for the next several days during this period is take a look at the greater discourse on the four establishments of mindfulness. Maha Satipatthana Sutta. The two Satipatthana suttas in the sutta collections, there's the Maha Satipatthana Sutta in the Long Discourses, and we could translate that as the greater, and it's greater not because it's better, but because it's longer. And then there's the Satipatthana Sutta. Uh, the Satipatthana Sutta is identical, except it doesn't have the detailed uh, explanation of the Four Noble Truths in the Eightfold Path, which does appear in the longer version. Uh, the longer version is Dikinikaya 22, the regular version is Majjhima 10. But in the Majjhima Nikaya, it, Sutta 141 is the detailed description of the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. So I guess uh, MN10 plus MN141 equals BN22. <laughs> so all the material is there. It's just a little spread out in the uh, middle length. But we'll look at the long version. So Maha means greater. Uh, and we find a number of suttas. There's a maha version and a chula, lesser version, and it has to do with the length of them, strictly, not 
your value. Sometimes the lesser version is much better than the longer version. And then sati, that's the word we translate as mindfulness. And that's a pretty good translation. Originally, sati meant memory. And we could define mindfulness, sati, as remembering to be here now. If you're mindful, you have remembered to pay attention <coughs> excuse me, to what's happening in the here and now. Right? Uh, you, you find lots of definitions of mindfulness happening today, uh, but I'm, I'm going to go with remembering to be here now. And then patana, probably a shortened form of upatana. You see it translated as foundations. Okay. Uh, establishments is probably closer to what the word really means. So four areas in which you should establish mindfulness would be the title of this sutta. Like most suttas, it starts out, thus have I heard. This was an oral tradition. And so at the first council, which took place two months <coughs> after the Buddha's death, a number of his fully awakened disciples got together and they codified the Buddha's teachings, the rules for the monks and nuns, and the discourses, the Buddha's sermons. And so they're sitting around and one of them goes, well, thus have I heard. Once the Buddha was living in the land of the Kurus. Okay? Uh, most suttas tell where they took place and who was present. And this was so that somebody else could think, well, yeah, I was with the Buddha in the land of the Kurus, but I don't remember him saying that. Or, yeah, and he also said it so they could figure it out. All right? And so the thus have I heard has continued. Once the Blessed One was staying among the Kurus, there's a market town of theirs called Tamasadama. Kuru country is identified with the area around Delhi. There are seven or eight Kuru suttas. They appear to be later compositions. One of the things that interests me is what I call sutta archaeology. Looking at the 6,000 suttas that we have and trying to determine you know, the various layers. What was early material? What's later material? Under the assumption that the early material is probably going to be closer to what the Buddha actually taught. Right? And so the Kuru Suttas appear not to actually be what the Buddha, or, or appear to not be the actual teachings of the Buddha. Uh, they're there's sort of two voices that you see in the Kuru Suttas, and uh, they're interesting. They have a lot of good Dhamma in them. They appear to be sometimes anthologies of what the Buddha was teaching. Uh, Delhi is quite a long ways away from all the other places that the Buddha taught. Uh, he was up and down the Ganges River Valley. And there are suttas that were given in all these places. And then there's this huge area where there were no suttas given, and then there are the Kuru suttas. So I'm guessing that the Kuru suttas are later compositions. 
the Buddhism spread from the Ganges River Valley to the land of the Kurus, and they composed suttas. This particular sutta is an anthology of teachings that we find that were given in earlier suttas. So the sutta itself, probably the Buddha never said it, but what's in the sutta, probably he did say. He just didn't say it in this particular format. Right? So it's an anthology that was created probably sometime in the first hundred years after the Buddha's death. So we had the first council where they organized the material they had uh, three months after the Buddha's death. And then somewhere between 60 and 100 years later, they had the second council. And it took them longer to organize the material at that council than it did at the first council which would tend to indicate that the first organization was no longer adequate and they came up with a new organization because they had a whole bunch of new material. If I were to guess, I would say probably less than half of the suttas that we have date from the time of the Buddha. And, you know, if you had something important to say in that hundred year period, you would say it and you would put it in the mouth of the Buddha because that would give it more authority, right? And so we wind up with some suttas that are really questionable. Uh, there's one in there that uh, is enough hellfire and brimstone that any Baptist preacher would be proud of it. Uh, I don't think that was from the Buddha. And we find ones like the Satipatthana suttas that are, yeah, definitely very good Dhamma and appear to be anthologies of teachings that uh, are definitely found in some of the earliest material. So this particular sutta has 13 different practices given in it, 13 meditation practices. But this is not the only version. There's the Pali version and there's two versions of it. But there's also a version in the Abhidhamma, and there are two Chinese versions, and I believe there's also a Sanskrit version, and they don't all have the same practices. There are five practices that show up in pretty much all of the versions. So we could probably guess that the original Satipatthana Sutta had these five practices, and people really liked it because it's very good advice. It's very good dhamma, good instructions. And so, but you know, it could, it could use another practice. And so they <laughs> added one in. And then they did two in until, in the Pali we have 13. In the, one of the Chinese versions, I believe we have something like 16. I don't remember 17, something like that. They added in even more practices. The other Chinese version doesn't have as many practices. Uh, and as we go through this and discuss each of the practices, I'll point out which ones were in what we assume to be the original version, and all the rest were added later at different times. But as I say, everything that's in here does appear in other places in the suttas and appears to be you know, from the earlier layers, the earlier strata of the Buddha's teaching. So, thus have I heard, once the Blessed One was staying among the Kurus. There is a market town of theirs called Kamasadama. 
And there the Blessed One addressed the monks. Monks, Lord, they replied. And the Blessed One said, There is this one going path that leads to the purification of beings, for the overcoming of sorrow and distress, for the disappearance of pain and sadness, for the gaining of the right path, for the realization of Nibbana, that is to say, the four establishments of mindfulness. So there is this one-going path. Uh, that's the literal translation. Uh, the Pali word, uh, the, the old commentaries aren't quite sure exactly what it meant. <coughs> word is Yano Magio, sometimes translated the only way or the one and only way. Um, I think there's seven different translations that are given in the commentaries. I think there, there's, it's a pun. The suttas are full of puns, but uh, unless you read Pali <laughs> or you have footnotes, uh, you don't see the puns. So that's why I translate it as the one going path. It's a path that leads in one direction only. All right? So the road out here, right? That's not a one going path. You could turn off at the house across the way, you could come in here, right? But the once you get far enough down the road in front of the dining hall, it's a one-going path. It only leads to the river. Right? So, this Satipatthana practice is a practice that leads in only one direction towards awakening. But it's also a pun on the fact that it's a one-going path in that it's only wide enough for one person at a time. In other words, it doesn't matter how much money you have, you cannot hire somebody to meditate for you. You've got to do it for yourself. So I believe that it's a pun. So it's a one-going path that leads to the purification of beings, to the overcoming of sorrow and distress, for the disappearance of pain and sadness, for the gaining of the right path for the realization of Nibbana. So it's the four establishments of mindfulness, and what are the four? Here, one abides contemplating body as body, ardent, clearly aware and mindful, having put aside hankering and fretting for the world. So, body, this physical body, and you're to contemplate it, investigate it, ardent, clearly aware and mindful, having put aside, yeah, all the stuff out there. What abides contemplating Vedna as Vedna, and I mentioned Vedna is your initial categorization of a sensory input, and one does it in the same way. Ardent, clearly aware and mindful, had put aside hankering and fretting for the world. One abides contemplating chitta as chitta. Chitta is usually translated as mind, more accurately should be heart-mind, but in this circumstance it actually refers to mind states, so being mindful of your state of mind. Again, in the same way. One abides contemplating dhammas as dhammas, ardent, clearly aware and mindful, having put aside <coughs> hankering and fretting for the world. Dhammas in this context would be phenomena. 
through contemplating the phenomena of your experience and in regard to how it fits with the Dhamma. So how does your experience and how are you relating to it? How is the Dhamma applied to that? And so then we have all the practices that are given for contemplation of the body. And the first one is mindfulness of breathing. How does one abide contemplating the body as body? Here, having gone into the forest or to the root of a tree or to an empty place. Okay, so go someplace where, yeah, there's nothing going on. So this would be an empty place. There's nobody making a meal here, nobody's doing handicrafts, the TV isn't on, right? So someplace where you won't be disturbed. One sits down cross-legged, holds one's body erect, and establishes mindfulness before oneself. Cross-legged posture is great if you can do it. But uh, as I mentioned, we have these things called chairs, which screwed up our ability to sit cross-legged. So you can kneel on a bench, or you can sit in a chair. You want to sit in a way <clears throat> that Basically, you can put your body and just leave it. You don't have to adjust it or anything else for the length of the meditation period. And one holds one's body erect, especially if you're doing mindfulness of breathing, which is the first of these. <laughs> Having the body upright helps with the breathing, and it also helps with alertness. If you're slumped over, yeah, it's going to be easier to go to sleep. So it counteracts the sloth and slumber. And then it says, having established mindfulness before oneself. You see also, sets up mindfulness before oneself. It literally says, sets up mindfulness at the mukta. Mukta means mouth, but it also can mean opening. We speak of the mouth of a cave, right? And I think it means the opening of the nostrils rather than your pie hole. Right? So, anyhow, one sets up mindfulness on the tactile sensations of breathing. And it appears that the nostrils is what's recommended in the suttas. The paying attention at the belly or the chest is actually something that came from early 20th century Buddha. Uh, uh, Burma. <laughs> early 20th century Burma. Uh, Mahasi Sayadaw became the <coughs> abbot of a monastery in Rangoon, and nobody meditated. He had all these monks, and they weren't meditating, and he realized that meditation was actually something the Buddha taught, and so he wanted to find a method of meditation he could easily teach to his monks. So he went up north to the forest monks, and he learned from them this belly breathing method and brought it back down to his monks in Burma, in Rangoon. And that's what became the Mahasi method, this noting and paying attention at the belly. Uh, before that, apparently, all mindfulness of breathing had been at the nostrils, but it's more difficult. Um, and so it had fallen out of favor. So now we have the directions on how one is mindful of the breathing. Mindfully one breathes in, mindfully one breathes out. And then we have four steps. 
Breathing in a long breath, one knows that one breathes in a long breath. And breathing out a long breath, one knows one breathes out a long breath. Breathing in a short breath, one knows that one breathes in a short breath. Breathing out a short breath, one knows one breathes out a short breath. One trains oneself thinking, I will breathe in conscious of the whole body. One trains oneself thinking, I will breathe out conscious of the whole body. And then the fourth one, one trains oneself thinking, I will breathe in calming the whole bodily process. One trains oneself thinking, I will breathe out calming the whole bodily process. These are the first four steps of the Anapanasati instructions, the mindfulness of breathing instructions that are found in a number of suttas, probably most famously in the Anapanasati Sutta, which is number 118 in the Middle League Discourses. And there's 16 steps there. These first four steps are obviously body-related, and they seem to be oriented to establishing access concentration. So the first two steps are the lengths of the breath. Knowing a long breath in, a long breath out, a short breath in, a short breath out. Right? And this is basically the aid that I gave you on the first night of noticing the lengths of the breath. And then, one trains oneself thinking, I will breathe in conscious of the whole body. One trains oneself thinking, I will breathe out conscious of the whole body. It sounds straightforward. You wouldn't believe the amount of commentary on this particular verse. What does the whole body mean, and how does one pay attention? <clears throat> so the official commentaries say that whole body <coughs> means whole body of breath. That is, beginning of the in-breath, middle of the in-breath, end of the in-breath gap, beginning of the out-breath, middle of the out-breath, end of the out-breath gap. That's because the word for body here is kaya, and like the English word for body, it can mean physical body, or it can mean a collection. We speak of a body of water, a body of men, right? And so the commentaries interpret this to mean the whole body of breath, the collection of all the bits and pieces associated with the breathing, which, okay, that's useful. Other interpretation is that you breathe in and you follow the breath into the body, and you follow it back out. This is not particularly useful for generating access concentration because it's too busy. Right? Your, your mind is not one point, it's going one point after another in pretty rapid succession. Um, it's a good insight practice, but I don't think it's useful for generating deep concentration. Another interpretation is that you breathe in and out and you notice the effects of your breathing on the body. Which, which is more calming, the long breaths or the short breath, etc. I say that this is probably the right one because the fourth one, one trains oneself thinking I'll breathe in, calming the whole bodily process. I'll breathe out, calming the whole bodily process. So you're observing the long and the short breaths. That's the first two. The third one, you're observing the effect your breathing is having <coughs> on the body. And the fourth one is not to control the breath, 
but to intend to breathe in a way that helps calm the body. And that would be the interpretation that I personally find the most helpful. This comes from Ajahn Buddha Dasa, who was one of the great uh, forest monks in Thailand in the last century. Uh, there's a book uh, that was translated by Santikaro entitled Mindfulness with Breathing. It's at least my favorite book on mindfulness of breathing. Uh, definitely recommend it if you want more detail on mindfulness of breathing. And of course it goes into all the 16 steps and everything else. It's a very detailed and complete book. And if you want to really go into detail, Santikaro teaches a number of retreats. He lives in uh, southwestern Wisconsin, so he's here in the Midwest. And you can go to his website, uh, liberationpark.org, and find his schedule. We have a simile. Just as a skill turner or his apprentice in making a long turn knows that he's making a long turn, or in making a short turn knows that he's making a short turn. In the same way, in breathing in long, one knows that one is breathing in long, etc. So the picture is of someone working at a lathe, and they have their tool, and they're making a long turn, or they're making a short turn, right? If you're working with power tools, you really got to pay attention, right? You can't be working at a lathe and watching a basketball game on TV. Right? You've got to be fully present with what's going on. And so when you're observing your breath, you should be observing it with the same sort of diligence that you have when you're working with power tools. Except you've got to put the relaxed in there. All right? In the West here, we're so far away from relaxed that I have to keep throwing that in. We do pretty good with the diligence. Uh, but yeah, it's got to be relaxed diligence. So this is not one of the original uh, practices in the original Satipatthana Sutta. It's a later edition. But clearly it's a very important practice and we find a whole section in the connected discourses on mindfulness breathing as well as mindfulness of breathing being talked about in a large number of other places. So questions on what's covered here or about mindfulness of breathing in general. Yeah, so I'm going to go with Ajahn Buddha Das's interpretation that you're really focused in on the breathing and you notice the effect it's having on your body. You notice 
that your body is getting calm. So you're not focused on the body. You're not focused on how calm you are. You're focused on the tactile sensations of breathing. So the focus remains narrow, but there is a sort of checking to see what's going on. And so I think that, that's the most useful interpretation I know for generating <coughs> the concentration that leads to jhanas. As I said, you could open up the attention more. It's a very good insight practice, but I don't think it will give you the concentration that will lead to jhanas. No, I would say it's more of an occasional opening up, seeing what's going on, and coming back to the tightness, as opposed to leaving it in the background. It's just not even there most of the time, and then a, okay, yeah, I'm getting more, and then here, back to just the tightness. Um, if there's a long breath, I'm aware that's a long breath, it's a short breath, I'm aware it's a short breath. Uh, so, for me, if, if I'm focusing on the breath, all of a sudden I just naturally take a long breath. I don't really like recognize that. Oh, that was a, that one was an African. Yeah. Is that is that so? When the unusual pops up, I recognize it. But as long as I'm just breathing, you know, a regular size. Yeah. yeah, it's tricky because yeah, most of the breaths are average. Right? It, it, there is an average, and most of them fit exactly the average. And then there's a longer one occasionally, and occasionally there's a shorter one. And yeah, So you can do it by, okay, just being there with the breathing, and yeah, it's average. Yeah, that's average. Uh, yeah. But I don't find that particularly helpful myself. Right. Right. Yeah. As long as it's, uh, excuse me for interrupting. As long as it's average, I really don't pay too much attention to its length. Yeah. I, my attention is on the sensation. Very good. Okay. Yeah, that'll work well. Okay. There's also some, I had some discussion with Santikaro. <coughs> is long, <coughs> long breath and short breath actually what we think of when we think of a long breath? We think of, <sighs> that's long and it's <sighs> short, right? But what if what it's really trying to say, I mean, we don't know because Pali hasn't been spoken for 2,500 years, really, or at least 2,000. What if it's really trying to say that you start out and you've got a normal depth of breath, and then as you get quieter, it gets more shallow, and you're noticing that it's getting very shallow. So we would use deep and shallow rather than long and short. Whereas at the time of the Buddha in India, 2,500 years ago, they didn't think of deep and shallow, they thought of long and short. And that we're stuck mistranslating the words literally and not getting what they originally meant. And Santikaro was like, oh, that's interesting, I had never thought of that. So he didn't kind of say one way or another. But that makes more sense to me because what I am telling you, okay, you sit down and you may find that your breath gets very subtle. It's getting very shallow. So uh, I'd say don't make 
too big a literal deal about any of this, all right? Pay attention to your breathing. And if you notice anything about it that helps you stay with it and not get distracted, yeah, do that. And then at some point, hopefully it'll take you to a place where both your body and your mind have gotten very calm. And you've arrived at access concentration. You're no longer <coughs> getting distracted. Um, I find that um, as I get more and more relaxed and the breath gets shallow, that I have this urgency to take a deep breath. And that happens just over and over and over. I, I keep thinking, no, don't do that. Just stay with the shallow breath. But it just sort of spontaneously happens. Right. This is fairly common in the sense that multiple people report this every retreat. It's not everybody gets it, but it's, it's really common. What I would say is when the urge gets there, take a slightly deeper breath, okay? Don't fight it, but don't take a deep breath. Just take a slightly deeper breath, and then let it go back to natural. It almost feels like greed in that, Yeah. because I, I, I take a deep breath to relax, and it's almost like, oh, I'm relaxing. I could really relax if I take a deep breath. <laughs> I mean, that's almost the unconscious yeah. piece that comes in there. Yeah, the one thing to, to realize, if you take a genuine deep breath, it will move you away from the onset of confusion. Right? So how can you deal with what you're experiencing so that you don't take a genuine deep breath? And the best I've been able to come up with is, yeah, take a slightly deeper breath. Um, I don't have any personal experience with this. It doesn't happen to me. Uh, so I can't say, oh yeah, I, what I found, you know, it's just in talking with people that seems to be the best. The most important thing is don't make a big deal about it, right? So yeah, it feels like you need a little more air, so get a little more air. Don't make a big deal. Um, so I have also heard that given Buddha's penchant for metaphor, that he didn't really mean long and short, that he used that as a way of describing all of the ways in which breath varies, long, short, deep, shallow, rough, smooth, open, shut, all of those different areas. What would, uh, yeah. would you say to that? Yeah, I hadn't heard that before, but it does make sense because there are places in the suttas where it seems like it's, very limited, the words that were chosen, but they're actually pointing to quite a, a, a range. But I had never thought about it implying the long and short, but it could well be. Um, it would be interesting to talk to Venerable Analio about this, because he's such a, a poly scholar, and see what he has to say there. I don't think he says much about that in his Satipatthana book, his first book. Um, I think I have a digital version with me, so I can't look it up. But yeah, that sounds interesting. I am wondering if this long breath might have a different origin. Um, because in a Patanjali's Yoga Sutras, there is a practice called Pranayama practice, which is a breath practice. And you do long breaths on purpose to slow down uh, the heart rate, uh, the vagus nerve and also calm the mind and uh, since uh, Buddha 
grew up in the same environment. I'm just wondering if this was a yoga practice and maybe this is the source of the long breath. And in the yeah. beginning, when I start the meditation, I do this longer pranayama or right. long breaths on purpose. And at least maybe I am fooling myself, uh, making myself believe, but I feel like it helps to calm the mind. Yeah, this is quite possible. Patanjali uh, is after the Buddha, but they were in the same culture. And so it could well be that this intentional long breath to get yourself settled. I often find that, you know, if, especially if I get really distracted, I come back, all right, I get settled, and I take a couple of longer breaths just to settle myself. So I'm not quite doing the, the specific thing, but it is intentional longer breaths, deeper breaths, and then I let it go back to natural. So it's quite possible that's the case as well. All we have is these few words, so we don't know, but that's an interesting speculation as well. Okay, so one, two, three, four. <laughs> Me? Yes. Okay. I'm finding myself getting confused about mindfulness practice versus concentration practice. And specifically, the word concentration has, I think, is tripping me up because I feel like it implies more effort than settling. It feels like the opposite of a settled mind, a concentrated mind. Yeah, that's why I say indistractability is a better translation of samadhi than concentration. Because concentration is a furrowed brow, got to do it yeah. thing. Do it. So what we're after for the jhanas is the indistractable mind. And the method for getting there is to be mindful of something that will lead you to the indistractable mind. Like mindful of your breathing or mindful of the feeling of metta. And as we'll see tomorrow, mindful of the body sensation. So mindfulness is a, a mental technique that we are using in service of generating good concentration, good indistractability. It's also used as an investigation tool. And what we'll talk about in the suttas is more oriented towards the investigation, right? So mindfulness of breathing can be used to generate concentration. It can also be used to generate investigation. So it's a twofer, you know, depending on how, how you use it. So uh, to get the indistractable mind, there's not a lot of investigation. In fact, it's a very narrow focus. Can I do a follow-up? Yeah. Um, I've always enjoyed the image of the muddy pond and letting it things settle. Right. Is that... Am I trying to let everything settle? Is yeah. that what I'm going for? Right. We're trying to let everything settle. And the method is, don't stir the pond. <laughs> and the method of not stirring the pond is put your attention on one thing and leave it there. Okay. You know, you can put the stick in the pond, just don't move it. You can put your attention on the breath, just don't move it. Right. <clears throat> oh, I, I just find one. I'm trying to do excess concentration and all the distractions comes up. Nine times out of ten, it's my body picks up somewhere. Yeah. And if I usually the shoulder, and it's just when I go back, I'll take a deep breath and I'll, I'll do this, and it really helps. Right. A lot of this, a lot of mental distraction is driven by uncomfort 
discomfort in the body. And so, yeah, this is very good, right? Uh, so, yeah, do what you can to get yourself settled. I mean, figure out how you can hold the stick in the pond without stirring it. Uh, it sounds like with Anapanasati, you're following more Buddhadasa. Did Ayakema teach it differently, or you just find Buddhadasa more thorough and helpful? Ayakema taught it pretty similar, but not as detailed as Buddhadasa. And so when I'm looking at this particular part of the sutta, uh, I find that, it, that Buddhadasa has more details and it is more helpful for me in, in terms of teaching it and understanding it for myself. Uh, Ayakema's teaching was basically put your attention on the air coming in and out of your nostrils, okay? And if it goes away, label it and come back. I got the relax part from Bhante Jamala Ramsey, so label, relax, and come back. Okay, so the technique is pretty simple and very much like Ayakema's. But now that we're looking at something a little bit more scholarly, uh, Ajahn Buddhadasa has a little bit more detail, so I'm adding his in. But I don't think there's any contradiction. I think, I know that I came out, was a great admirer of Buddhadasa. Um, similar to this gentleman, um, I was very concentrated this morning and um, had a lot of PT. And, but I was noticing tightening muscles, but the minute I actually noticed it, I don't know that I did anything about it, but it sort of relaxed. Yeah, so the onset of PT can produce a lot of muscle tension, okay? I'm guessing that PT is dopamine breaking down into norepinephrine. The norepinephrine produces muscle tension. So most people, that's, that's where the uplifting PT comes from. All right, that's the muscles tense and you feel like you're rising up and your hair stands on end and so forth. I think that's norepinephrine. So, um, yeah, what I, what you were describing is what I would expect, actually. That makes sense because there was a lot of PT. But again, I didn't do anything that I know of. I just noticed it. And right, it and it, yeah. It's interesting how sometimes just noticing an effect makes it change. So, yeah. And it, so don't worry about the muscle tension as the first jhana arises or while you're in the jhana. And if it's too much and you know, you've had enough, take a deep breath and really relax and let the energy out and that will calm the PT. Focus on the remnants of the joy happiness and that'll take you towards the second jhana. If you lift your shoulders up towards your ears and just let it gravity drop, really the tension just goes away. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's a very good way to, to release tension in not only your shoulders, but it, the whole the whole of the body seems to respond to it. Eyebrows. Yeah. Okay. Now, for each of these practices that's given here, we have the refrain. The one abides contemplating body as body internally, Contemplating body as body externally, contemplating body as body both internally and externally. <clears throat> Quite a lot of discussion about what internal and external means. I think internally means yourself, and external means others. 
So if you're sitting next to that guy who breathes too loud, you can follow his breath. It works just as well. Right? So you do auditory rather than tactile. But uh, yeah. Uh, while you're doing this practice, though, if everybody's being nice and quiet, it's just going to be the internal. Right? But you can notice that everybody is breathing. Right? It's a very common thing to do. One abides contemplating a rising phenomenon in the body. One abides contemplating vanishing phenomena in the body. One abides contemplating both a rising and vanishing phenomena in the body. Breathing is an impermanent thing. It only works because it's impermanent. If a breath were to come in and not go out, uh, how long would it last? It might make it five minutes. If it were to go out and not come back in, uh, yeah, you're not going to make it very long at all. Right? Breathing actually requires impermanence. So one thing you can do as an insight practice is just pay attention to the impermanent nature of your breath. The fact that things are changing all the time. Now that would be <clears throat> something to do if you're using your breathing for insight. If you're trying to get concentrated, all right, then yeah, just, just don't get distracted. Don't go contemplating the impermanent. Uh, one of the problems that sometimes shows up for people is they start investigating their breath while they're trying to get concentrated, and they may gain some insight doing that, but they won't get concentrated enough for the jhana to arrive. And thus, mindfulness, there is a body, is present to one just for the extent necessary for knowledge and awareness. And what abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. And that is how what abides contemplating body as body. <coughs> so, there is a body. It's not, there is my body. So, one is now viewing this body and this process in a much less personal way. It becomes very impersonal. And this is very helpful for gaining insight into not-self. And if the mindfulness of breathing is working to take you to concentration, <coughs> in retrospect you could look back and go, yeah, right, uh, there wasn't a lot of me going on in there. It wasn't my breath. It was just a tactile sensation. I wasn't thinking about it inside my nose or anything like that. But if you start doing that while you're trying to get the concentration, yeah, it's going to mess you up. So don't do inside practice <coughs> while you're trying to generate access concentration. Save it for after your concentration. Any questions about the refrain? Relates to what you, I think you said, not today, but another day, that like when it gets really subtle, if you can't feel it, just to be aware if it's an in-breath or an out-breath. Right. Yeah. If the breath gets so subtle you can't actually pick up the tactile sensations, but you still know whether it's in or out, keep your attention pointed at the same place where you last felt the breath. And just know 
that it's in and know that it's out. Now you don't want to be saying in and out because that's a little too busy. But you're still aware of the breath at that point. And that'll work just fine. If it gets so subtle you don't know whether it's in or out, then you're going to have to go to the pleasant sensation. Okay, so the second practice is the four postures. Again, when walking, one knows one is walking. When standing, one knows that one is standing. When sitting, one knows that one is sitting. When lying down, one knows that one is lying down. In whatever way one's body is disposed, one knows that is how it is. Pretty simple. I mean, you can do that right now. Sitting. Just become aware you're sitting. Now, this is probably not a very useful practice to do for an hour. You know, you sit down, sitting, but still sitting. But, because of the refrain, we do it internally, externally. All right, I'm sitting, everybody else is sitting. Arising and passing. How many times a day do you change amongst the postures of standing, walking, sitting, and lying down? Anybody want to guess? Hundreds. Hundreds, yeah, hundreds. I was at the Forest Refuge once and I decided to count. <laughs> it was a really good way to be mindful all day long. Right? Just, it was hundreds, many hundreds. And I didn't even count while I was washing the dishes because I was standing and walking, standing and walking so much. Right? So, whenever you go to stand up after you've been sitting, you should pay attention to the fact that you're changing your posture from sitting to standing. And then when you start walking, you should notice that you change your posture from standing to walking. And when you get to your shoes and you stop, notice you change your posture from walking to standing. Alright? So, use this in particular to notice the change of postures that happens. Uh, this is a very good off-the-cushion practice. Highly recommended. Simple, but really hard to do. Uh, I'm sure the many hundreds that I counted, I must have missed at least a few of them. Any questions about it? The next one is entitled Clear Awareness. I would actually entitle it Mindfulness of Bodily Activity. Again, when going forward or back, one is clearly aware of what one is doing. In looking forward or back, one is clearly aware of what one is doing. In bending and stretching, one is clearly aware of what one is doing. In carrying one's inner and outer robe and bowl, one is clearly aware of what one is doing. In eating, drinking, chewing, and savoring, one is clearly aware of what one is doing. In passing excrement or urine, one is clearly aware of what one is doing. In walking, standing, sitting, falling asleep and waking up, in speaking or staying silent, 
one is clearly aware of what one is doing. So basically, you need to be mindful all the time you're awake. You don't have to be mindful while you're asleep. Right? But whatever else is going on, you want to be aware in the present moment of what's happening. This is probably the most important practice for learning the jhana. If you come in here and you work really hard with your mindfulness of breathing and then you get up and go outside and start planning your trip to Hawaii or you know, just completely lose it, next time you come in, you're starting at zero again. But if you can keep the awareness up while you're doing your walking meditation, while you're eating, while you're brushing your teeth, then when you come in the next time, you're not starting at zero. And your indistractability begins to build and build more and more throughout the day. Uh, it says that in eating, drinking, chewing, and savoring, one is clearly aware of what one is doing. This is eating meditation. The normal way we eat is we stick the fork in the food, we shovel it in our mouth, we start chewing, and we're getting the next bite ready, and as soon as they're room, we shovel it in. We're actually spending more of our awareness on loading the fork and tasting the food. This is crazy. Right? So I'm going to suggest the following. Load the fork. Pay attention to what it's like to bring it to your mouth. How do you get the food off the fork? You turn the fork over. Use your tongue. Use your teeth. How, how do you get the food off the fork? Right? Pull the fork out. Don't start chewing yet. Put the fork down. Let it go. Now. Notice the flavor before you start to chew. You start chewing, notice the change in flavor, notice the texture, notice the change in texture. How do you know when to swallow? I mean, you're just chewing, but at some point you decide to swallow. And when you swallow, do you swallow all of it at once, or do you swallow part of it and chew some more and swallow? What goes on? Pay attention to that. Pay attention to your tongue. It's an animal in there. <laughs> it's dodging the teeth. It's scraping the food. You're not telling it what to do. You try and tell it what to do, you're going to bite your tongue. Right? Watch that thing. Right? When your mouth is empty, pick up the fork, load the fork, repeat. Okay? Yes, you will eat slower. I have heard it said that eating slow is a healthy way to eat. Right? You'll get full faster. Alright? So you won't need as much food. Therefore, you won't be caught in sensual desire or falling asleep. Alright? So mindfulness of eating, yeah, it's good for keeping the indistractability up. But it has a lot of other benefits as well. And then, one is mindful when falling asleep and waking up. So I'm going to give you a homework assignment. When you come to your interview, you can tell me the answer. <laughs> Do you fall asleep on an in-breath or an out-breath? Do you wake up on an in-breath or an out-breath? Right? You can do this. I'll give you 
give you a hint. When you're falling asleep, don't pay attention to your breathing as so much as you pay attention to what it's like to fall asleep. In other words, watch the falling asleep process. Okay? And then you can tell what's going on. Now, if you're suffering from insomnia, and this makes your insomnia worse, forget about it. But everybody wakes up, all right? So you wake up on an in-breath or an out-breath. You just got to be mindful. You can tell. All right? So any question about uh, mindfulness of bodily activities throughout the day? suggestions for um, supporting that, or the continuity, uh, noting, for example? Noting can be helpful for doing that. So you can just be saying, walking, walking, left, right, uh, brushing teeth, brushing upper teeth, brushing lower teeth, brushing inside teeth, and then you can, you can just say brushing. Yeah, so noting can be helpful. Uh, you can find cues that are helpful. Uh, one thing I found was really helpful was doorknobs. Yeah. Anytime I interacted with a doorknob, it was also a sign, remember to be mindful, right? So, and, and you deal with doors quite a lot. I mean, you gotta go through a door to get out of here, you gotta go through a door to get into the dining hall, right? So, use things like doorknobs and other things you do fairly often, but not all the time. Uh, pushing a button doesn't work for me because, you know, I was a computer programmer. I sit there all day pushing buttons. You know, I do it too much. So something you do all the time is not useful. But stu stuff you do multiple times a day that are irregular, like doors, like faucets. You know? And you're just making an effort you know, when you touch the doorknob, you say to yourself, be mindful. When you turn on the faucet, be mindful. Right? Find little things like that are, that are triggers for the mindfulness. So I've heard this said before. How literal are my teachers wanting me to do this? I mean, would you do that all day long? Wanting, yes. <laughs> Expecting, no. <laughs> the best you can, all right? Uh, I mean, it's a long walk from here to the dining hall. So what are you going to do on that walk? You know, where's your mind going to go? Is it going to be present with what's going on? Is it going to be doing walking meditation, not the slow walking, food will be put away, but, you know, are you going to be paying attention to the tactile sensations of walking? Or are you going to be thinking about what you're going to do when you get out of here? Or are you going to be remembering something from the past? Or where's your mind going to be in the walk from here to the dining hall? Can it be in the present? It can be in the present with the tactile sensations of walking. It can be in the present with looking at the green leaves on both sides of the road. It could be noticing the rocks so you don't step on a sharp one. But it, as long as it's in the moment, yeah, that's good. And I don't expect anybody to get it 100%. If you do, that's really good. 
Okay, but uh, yeah. Do you so, know anyone who does? Who gets it 100 percent? No. Did the Buddha? I think what happens that when somebody becomes fully awakened, they do actually reprogram their brain so that instead of running what's called a default mode network, right now, if you're not fully awakened, you got nothing to do. Neuroscience has found there's a network in your brain that lights up when you got nothing to do. You know, they put you EEG on and they say, okay, uh, sit here while we do something, and they watch your brain, right? <laughs> and they see you got nothing to do and you run the default mode network. And then they give you a task and now you're doing the task network. And they say, okay, uh, wait for a couple of minutes, we'll give you something else, and you're sitting there running your default mode network. And everybody has the same thing. Well, the default net mode network ties together multiple parts of the brain associated with generating a sense of self. And they say that fully awakened people have overcome the delusion of self. So they're not running the default mode network anymore. I'm guessing they've replaced the default mode network with mindfulness. They got nothing to do. They're just mindful. So... Now your question boils down to, I know any fully awakened people, but as I came and says, it takes one to know one, so I still got work to do, so I can't tell you. But yeah, I think it, it's automatic once someone is fully awakened. Until then, we got to work at it. We got to remember to be mindful. There was another hand, yes. Um. So, um, what I try to do is, in each of those moments, be aware of my intention. And if it's my intention to be mindful of my feet walking, then it's, the core is, what was my intention? Sometimes I want to watch the goldfinches. If that's my intention, there's so much that happens. It's such a big, blooming, buzzing confusion, in the words of William James, yeah. that if I'm tuned into my intention, what is my intention in this moment? That helps me be present with that intention, yeah. and that's what guides my everyday mindful activity. Yeah, this that's is my intention. Yeah, this is very excellent. You can be present watching the goldfinches, and you can also be present watching the goldfinches and know that's your intention to watch the goldfinches, which is a step up. Yeah, very good. Other questions about mindfulness, mindfulness of daily activities. Any other questions in general? That's really all I wanted to cover today. Oh no, I do have one other thing. <laughs> so there are five things to do at the end of a city. <coughs> 
first one is recapitulation or review. If you've had a sitting the likes of which you would like to have again, it's useful to know what you did to make that sitting happen. You can review what you did before you came in to sit. Had you just had three cups of coffee? Probably not. Uh, had you been doing walking meditation? Right. Then how did you sit? Were you in the chair? Were you on the floor? How did you put your hands? What was it like to do the five things at the beginning? How much time did you spend doing metta? What was your object of meditation? Was it the breath? Where was the breath? Did you get to access? What did it feel like when you got to access? How long did you stay in access? When you shifted to the pleasant sensation, where was the pleasant sensation? What was it like to be with the pleasant sensation? What happened? How did it change? I mean, just all of this. If you had a sitting the likes of which you never want to have again, it also can be useful. Three cups of coffee? Yeah, you don't want to do that again. <laughs> right? So, basically, you can't have the same sitting, but you can figure out what were the contributing factors such that you had a sitting that you found useful. And then, to the best of your ability, uh, try and re repeat that. You will discover that some of the things that you did before just were not contributing factors at all, and others turn out to be quite important. You know, maybe it's really helpful if you do five minutes of metta and you're much more settled than if you just do 20 seconds of metta at the start. Figure it out on your own. So recapitulation is the first. The next one is impermanence. All those states, whatever you are experiencing, they're impermanent. They're gone. The jhanas are mundane states of mind. Permanent. They have their causes and conditions, they have their supporting conditions. Now that the bell's rung and the meditation's over, they're impermanent. So see the impermanent nature of whatever you've experienced during that meditation period. Did you get any insights? The reason we do this practice is to get insights. The jhanas are a warm-up for our insight practice, and the insight practice is the hopefully give us insight into the nature of what's actually happening. So, did you get any insights? It's very helpful to say them to yourself before you get up. Insights are sort of like your high school Spanish, you know, goes to the back of your mind, you go to vacation on Mexico, after two weeks down there it starts coming back, and then of course you're back here and not speaking Spanish again, it goes back to the back. Well, the insights go back there with the Spanish, right? You, you get a, oh, wow, I didn't know that. That's cool. And then you don't think about it. And then two years later, you get the same insights like, oh, yeah, right, I forgot. But if you keep them fresh, then they can be much more useful. They can guide you so you act in harmony with the way things are. So the first thing to do to keep your insights fresh is just say them to yourself before you get up. Fourth thing is dedication of merit. We're not doing this practice just for ourselves. 
it's going to have an impact on everyone <laughs> that we come into contact with because we're going to change who we are. So just getting in touch with that by dedicating the merit, you could do something like, may any merit from this sitting period be for the benefit and liberation of all beings everywhere, or however you want to phrase it. Just uh, an acknowledgement that, yeah, this is bigger than just me. I, I sometimes find it helpful to pre-dedicate the merit. You know, like old Uncle John, he's been having a hard time lately, so Uncle John, this sitting's for you. That sort of uh, spurs me to really do my best. I don't want to get to the end of the sitting and go, oh, sorry, Uncle John. <laughs> <laughs> of course, all sittings have merit, even if it didn't get concentrated. And then the fifth thing is remember to be mindful. All right, Just, you know, all right got to be mindful as I get up. I got to notice the ceasing of sitting and the arising of standing and the ceasing of standing and the arising of walking. Mindful as I walk, mindful as I put on my shoes. And on and on you go. But if you remind yourself to do it just before you get up, you have a much better chance to do it. So that's on the paper that you printed. And uh, take a look at it. We'll have to do another quiz, right? Uh, you can remember these with REM, R double I double M. Recapitulation, impermanence, insight, merit, and mindful. Any questions about this? Just one question about coffee. If we're feeling sleepy, is coffee an obstacle to cultivating access, or is it okay? depends on you and your body's relationship to coffee yeah. uh, okay if you don't normally drink coffee i uh, would not recommend it i'd say find some green tea right but if you're a coffee drinker and you usually drink coffee and you're sleepy then yeah maybe half a cup see what it does if you overdo the coffee you will get a great exploration of restlessness <laughs> So there, there is that fine point there to figure out how much caffeine. But yeah, uh, back when I was working, I discovered that if I was sleepy in the mornings, then I should have green tea with my breakfast. Because I don't normally do caffeine. So I just do one cup of green tea, and then I was fine. Uh, it was just enough to give me a little bit of a boost there. Uh, but if you're a regular coffee drinker and you're not drinking coffee here and you're sleepy and you drink the green tea, you may not do anything. You may need a little bit of coffee. Uh, but I also had uh, a student who was drinking, I'm not sure how many cups a day, five, seven, something like that. He didn't make it through the retreat. Mm. Yeah, he, he, he then decided to fast and he was just drinking coffee. Uh, oh boy, <laughs> that did not go well at all. So yeah, you gotta, you gotta, you, you have to tune it. And I would say probably better to undershoot than overshoot. Right. Thanks. Kind of along with that, I, if, if you're a person who exercises and you're here, is it better? You know, my life doesn't depend on it, and yet, does it take me out of? Yeah. 
When I'm on retreat, after lunch, I go for a walk. Kind of a brisk walk, right? Uh, I find that's much better. I, I have been on retreat and not done any exercise, and it, didn't, it just didn't feel right. So, uh, you know, I wouldn't really get into it, but I have known a few people who go for a run, you know, they, uh, lunchtime, they go 15 minute run, they come back, get, uh, get their lunch before it gets put away. Uh, but a walk, actually, I, I think is probably pretty good. Whatever you do, though, you got to be mindful. You got to stay right with it. So, yeah, when I was in the forest refuge, I'd go for a walk after lunch. I mean, after lunch, I've got only really two choices. I can go for a walk or I can go to sleep. If I come in to meditate right after lunch, I'm going to go to sleep. Right? So, yeah, go for a walk. And so almost every day, I mean, it had to be really storming for me not to go for my walk. And it just seemed to help a lot. Uh, so, yeah, if you're used to exercise, it's probably useful to do a little bit, as long as you can do it mindfully. Sounds like it's working for you, yeah. so yeah, definitely do it. Uh, it will probably take a little longer to get to the depth of concentration, but it sounds like that if you were to just push the concentration, it wouldn't even work. So yeah, I'd say just keep working with what, what you find works. Uh, what I put out here is basically sort of the middle of the road for finding the genre. And almost nobody goes exactly down the middle of the road. Some people are off to the right, and some people are off to the left, and a few people are in the ditch. And my job is to figure out that what people are doing that's different from the way I do it is useful or not useful. And the best thing that I can use to tell whether what somebody is doing is useful or not is their description of how it works for them. And so if it's working, yeah. It was really interesting when I started teaching to discover the huge variety of basically how people meditated, how they responded to meditation, how the jhanas manifested for them. I just assumed that everybody was like me, because that was the only person I really explored that much. And then I started talking to a few of I came as other advanced students who were practicing jhanas, and it was like, oh, wow, it's not exactly like me. And then I started doing interviews, and it was like, oh, that was a real eye-opener. Uh, but the thing to remember is that all I'm doing is putting out guidelines. 
I really am just a hippie computer programmer, and the reason I can teach jhanas is because this is where the mind likes to go. It's not anything special with me, it's just that you have a human mind, and if the human mind gets quiet enough, if it stop, stops covering up what's actually there, then what shines forth is a joyous, happy mind. And the way to get it to stop covering up what's there is to generate some indistractability. And then you've got to figure out what's the best way for yourself to generate that indistractability. And then if you focus on some pleasure, it seems to take people to a place where these jhanas arise. And so my job is to put the instructions out there, and then your job is to play with them and then come to your interview and tell me what's happening and then figure out how to tune it so it happens a bit more effectively. That's about all I can do. This relates to the question about exercise. Kind of. um, on retreat, we're often instructed not to read, not to write too much, not to. What about like making things, like handicrafts? Why not? Because, for the same reason, you don't read it does tend to stir the mind up a bit. You want to keep things as simple as possible. Right? Uh, but don't those sometimes lead to like a state of flow that would be Possibly helpful, so. Or it can be an escape. Yeah. Right? And so the, the danger of the potential escape is greater than the possible state of flow for concentration. That's why it's not there. It might work for somebody, but I think in general it would probably tend to be more of an escape. Uh, that's, that's what I'm afraid of. I mean, even the, the writing. I mean, people do write to escape. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's, I would say it's fine to take notes. But, I mean, you don't take notes to escape. <laughs> take notes so you can remember, and that, that's good. But uh, anything more than that, probably not as good. And it's better just to be in the present moment of what's going on and keeping things as simple as possible seems to be part of it. Now, it could be, I, I mean, there are retreats that are a combination of meditation and yoga, writing, uh, art. And those are very good retreats. It's just, I'm not sure that they would be useful for learning jhanas. And so for jhana, you want to get your mind as quiet as possible. And so the, the handicraft stuff, I think, is a little bit too di disturbing to use it in the broadest sense possible. Okay, last one and then it's lunch. Last night, while, you, while we were doing the metta meditation, um, I experienced so much heart opening and joy and happiness that I started to laugh. And I, I kept it quiet, but I was laughing silently the whole time. I, I realized that um, laughing out loud might be a, a distress for other people. Yes. 
This is not that uncommon. Uh, when we get a real release like that, and laughter, tears, these things can show up. Uh, go with it as long as it doesn't disturb your neighbor. That's basically all I would say. And yeah, doing meta is something that can very much lead to a heart opening. And uh, that can yeah bring both tears and laughter. Okay, enjoy your lunch. It's group three this afternoon for the interview.